this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back this week. We have uh, one of our many requested reviews. Requested, requested review. And this one is from our friend from down under, Mr. Gavin Reed. This is his second requested review of the year. All right. He always brings us interesting choices. He does. I don't think he's missed yet. No, I mean, there's been some where we've been like, maybe it's an EP and not an album, but I don't think we've completely butchered anything that he has suggested. There's always something yeah. interesting going on. Yeah, they're worthy of discussion, whether we personally love them or not. I think a lot of them are uh, important in other ways and worth talking about. So this one is The Screaming Jets. Jay, were you familiar with the band The Screaming Jets? Uh, I was familiar with the name. I, I remember in the late 90s, I, I feel like a lot of bands referenced them. Um, so late 90s, the sort of resurgence of hard rock uh, via garage punk. So Glucifer, Helicopters, New Bomb Turks, Hives, that whole thing mm-hmm. that happened in Scandinavia and places like Detroit and New York City and even the West Coast, I felt like this was a band that I heard in that context. Okay. Um, so, yeah. I hadn't heard the music, though. Well, that would make sense because I, I don't know how much touring they did in the United States, but they definitely, according to their bio, did a lot, a lot of touring in Europe. So they could have been out on tour in the early 90s, early mid-90s, you know, influencing those bands as they were just coming up. So that's definitely a possibility. So let's, uh, let's talk about, or let's give uh gavin's feedback on the album that we're going to do which is called tear thought it's from 1992 he says this is the difficult second album the song better from their first album all for one is still an fm radio staple and pub favorite here for me this is the hugely underrated follow-up of all the bands i've heard the screaming jets are the last i expect to incorporate horns and have it work but it does, for me at least. I have fears for the length of this album, though, which we'll get to. It's a 16-song tr- album with a hidden track. So uh, we'll discuss that in a little bit. I do want to mention we got some feedback on our Patreon Patreon page. Uh, Scott Witt says, I have All for One, which is the album that Gavin just talked about. He says, and I love it, though my cover art is a little bit different than what I see on Wikipedia, which we're finding out that they pretty much, they had multiple cover art uh, versions for each album based on the territory. So there's a European version or an Australian version or US version. Um, maybe an American thing. I also have an FRC single, which is good stuff. Um, FRC is a single that was released, I believe off the first record. Um, it FRC is an abbreviation for fat, rich, C word, <laughs> and apparently it was a huge, like, bar band single. Like, I don't think I play on the radio, but people love the song from what I'm from what I'm told. Because anytime you use swear words in song titles, you're going to get some people who are appreciative of that 
Um, I also want to mention that if you join Patreon in the month of April, you have a chance to take home a double vinyl 180 gram copy of Failures, The Heart is a Monster. Everybody who is subscribed to Patreon between uh, or by the end of April, April 30th, midnight Eastern Standard Time, you're entered in to win. It, it can cost you as little as $1 to take home something that is valued at, quite frankly, priceless. Or twenty two ninety nine, depending on which record store you're in. So let's talk about uh, a little bit of this history of this band. History of the band. So they're from Newcastle, Australia. Formed in 1989 uh, by Dave Gleason on vocals, Grant Walmsley on guitar, Paul Wozin on bass guitar and backing vocals. Richard Lara on second guitar and Brad Heaney on drums. Two years later, they released their debut studio album, which was All for One. It peaked at number two on the Aria albums chart, and uh, the song Better became a number four hit. Second album came out a year later, October 1992, Tear of Thought, which which is uh, what we are what we are reviewing. It was released. Um, in the U.S. on Atlantic. So they did get a release here in uh, the United States. The band supported Ugly Kid Joe on a European tour in 1993, and that's when the drummer, Brad Heaney, was fired. He was temporary repla- temporarily replaced by Dave Holland. Jay, does that name ring a bell? Uh, Judas Priest? Judas Priest. Is he the pederast? I don't know. One of their drummers got busted for like child pornography or something. I hope it's not him. Um, he was only a temporary replacement. They they had a full time fill in after that tour, or a full time yeah replacement. Um, the album reached number three in uh, July of ninety four. And interesting note: the American version was shortened to eleven songs. Huh? Yeah. That's uh, quite a dramatic edit. It is quite a dramatic edit. Hmm. In uh, 95, they released their self-titled third album. It peaked at number five. And it was the first CD launched via webcast. Okay, what does that mean? I don't know, but they did a webcast, which I'm guessing was like a live, real audio player type of deal. Mm, Gotcha. And they they launched the, they debuted the album that way. So Fire up my Winamp? Yeah, (laughs) Your win app, Jay. Get that stream URL. Yeah. Punch it in there. Your 128. My 128K modem. Yep. Fire it up. Streaming that shit in 64 bit glory. Oh my God. That is awful. Um, Their fourth album, World Gone Crazy, released in August 97. It made the top 20. Uh, And then. In 2000, they released Scam. Then they kind of went on a bit of a hiatus, released an EP in 2004, and then another album, Do Ya, in 2008. And then they've some of the band members have gone off to do solo work, and, and they've played reunion shows up to last year. So there's promise of new material, but I uh, did not find any uh, news on that. So that is the history 
of the Screaming Jets. Of course, like Gavin, if you would like to request a review, you can do that one of two ways. You can go on over to our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com, and you can request an album for the 2016 season, or if you would like to request for the 2017 season, you can go to Patreon, and for $2.50 a month, after 12 months, you get to pick a record. So it spreads out the uh, payments. We put it on a payment plan, but there's no interest. There's no VIG on that. You don't got to worry about that. So Jay, let's talk about Tear of Thought by the Screaming Jets. Gavin Reed's suggestion. Jay, tell me one thing you liked about this record. Well, everything. <laughs> well. Um, yeah, our boy, for me, our, our boy Gavin knocked it out of the park with this one. This hits, this flips all the switches on my motor. Gets all your gears going. It does. Uh, yeah, this is, I, I was shocked that this came out in 1993. I mean, it sounds. Two. Oh, two. Sorry. All right. Um, even, even more shocking. Boy, it sounds, aside from maybe drum production, it sounds like it could have came out now. It sounds like it could have came out in the late 90s with a lot of the bands that I think they potentially influenced it's certainly different for 1992 in mm-hmm. that boy this is one of those albums we've reviewed a couple where you're like you know this this really should have should have been the transition record to get us from the 80s into the 90s like this kind of sound in that um you know it's still rooted in kind of classic rock and at times punk rock but it, it's it's like raw um it's got really strong songwriting that's very diverse i mean for when you get into it it feels like it's going to be kind of a just straight ahead acdc ish kind of rock record but Mm -hmm. between the the 16 songs on the record it really does take some twists and turns that are unexpected and yet believable and sound credible the you know the singing is is the vocal is unique I don't really the only the only band I could really come up with that sounded close to them would be maybe Buck Cherry. Like I could hear them totally have having heard this band and, and making it the model for what they did on a more commercial level. Um but I think they're this band is much better, the singer is much better, the songs are much better, um they're melodic, but they're kind of bar bandy and they have a swagger and a grittiness to them that's completely authentic um so yeah i i I really enjoyed this record a lot let me ask you this um a band that i thought of that didn't reach our expectations was the wild hearts Mm -hmm. do you think that this album is sort of what the wild hearts could have done uh i definitely think the wild hearts could this is a direction they they could have go in that would i would be more happy with so and that's a band i i thought of because i think some of these hooks start to approach that i think some of the right. riffs are similar but they avoid the trappings of um trying to be too i don't know hard like they just sound like credible these guys just sound like i don't know real guys hang out in bars ride motorcycles and like none of it's BS. So that just comes through in the music. They don't have to like crank up the distortion and write like 
ridiculously heavy riffs to kind of, I don't know, flex their muscle. It's mm-hmm. it's a little more subtle than that. And it's ultimately, which I wish the Wild Hearts would do more, is it's really just about the songs. I mean, most of these songs are fairly concise. Right. Um, it's the conciseness not, that helps. Yeah, there's not a lot of diverting into weird areas and songs and, and, and parts that, that don't make any sense. It's, you know, it's pretty tight. Um, so I think there's a lot here that the tones are diverse. You know, they kind of they turn the distortion down sometimes. There's a couple of slow songs on here. Mm-hmm. They can groove, but yet like track one Dream On shows, they can come right out and kick your ass with an awesome tempo and a lot of energy. I think they're they're what I wish the Wild Hearts would be sometimes. Well, playing off of what you said with regards to um, the, the guitar playing, I think that the secret weapon in terms of what makes them, I guess, to us more appealing than what that Wild Hearts record that we checked out is um, Grant Wamsley, the guitar player, because mm-hmm. he's not just this like guy playing, you know, power chords and in punk riffs and then occasionally slowing it down into more like of a hard rock feel. Like there's some pretty interesting and complex stuff and he's drawing on more than just, you know, ACDC he's drawing. I, you can hear some like Eddie Van Halen in his playing when you hear like, like uh, the oh, third, yeah. the third song meet anybody has this like breakdown that's off of I, I like foreign lawful carnal knowledge or something like the guitar tone is like straight off of that record. Mm. And um, you can hear it in a lot of these songs where the guitar playing is just a bit more advanced. He, I, it, to me, it sounds like he might be the guy that was like listening to like a lot of those virtuoso guitar players in the in the ninety or in the eighties, and he brings that slightly more complex, and slightly more learned guitar playing to the band, um, and but doesn't make it too showy. You know what I mean? There's no like finger tapping solos and craziness in terms of that but he's able to like flex the muscle here and there Yeah, listen to Rich Bitch is it's like pure like uh Leonard Skinner boogie, like southern rock. Mm-hmm. Like sounds totally legit. It doesn't sound like a band trying to be them. It just sounds like 
real deal. And then you flip over to something like Feeble at the end of the record. And it's like this really cool kind of syncopated, the drums are rhythmically, like the timing is kind of odd. And it creates this really interesting guitar interplay and completely unexpected and different than, you know, some of the ACDC style riffs or the Leonard Skinner stuff. But somehow still, like, it still fits together. I think that's the part that appealed to me most was, you know, we've listened to a lot of records where bands will do really wide, diverse stuff, especially on in the 90s when you had 16 tracks to play with if you wanted. I really felt like they're able to play in all these different places and it still sounds okay together. You know, there was mm-hmm. very few tracks on here where I'm like, eesh, you know, this is a sour note, like... Really shouldn't have, really shouldn't have tried this, um, and I think Gavin even brought it up like one of the tracks has horns on it. It has like this kind of shuffle. swing feel, and swing. shuffle. Yeah, yeah. And it it worked uh, to me. It was like, wow, this completely works. Yeah, that's that's the song that doesn't work for me. I just felt like it, it felt like an oddball. It's like a jazz, like a soft jazz breakdown that I was like, I'm not feeling. This Are you talking about help, helping, helping hands, hands. Yeah. yeah. Like everything about that like, song was off for me in terms of the I, overall record. I just felt like his vocal on that is so good, and the melody is strong enough that it musically the genre, the kind of the genre thing, didn't bother me. Like I was fixated on the the vocal and the melody, which sounded like it could have got pulled from any of the other songs. So it was like, oh okay. Like I don't know. I I equated it to. You brought up Van Halen. I equated it to like when Van Halen would do something a little bit, like on a seventies record, would do something a little, you know, not yeah. not as hard rock, you know, and kind of go into a little bit of a genre feel. And I feel like they they were able to pull it off fairly well. I, I can see where you're coming from with that. In terms of like the American versus the Australian version of this albums, I, I I don't know if that's one of the albums, one of the five songs that got cut, but it it would be in my American version. Mm-hmm. And you probably could have, they probably could have done two solid records out of this. Like you could have, you could have done. Well, they also put out an EP around this too. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was other songs that didn't make this record. I, they were very prolific at this point in terms of songwriting from what I can tell. <sighs> like, I feel like you could, if you really wanted to say this was done in the seventies, they would have released these like one in 92, one in 93. And I think one would have been like a hard rock, like a ACDC style riff record. Mm-hmm. And the other would be kind of more of a, a pop oriented uh, play where it's got more diversity and it's got the bigger hooks and it's a little less rough around the edges. I think you could go through this record and split it in half and end up with two fairly different sounding, you know, right albums. There's a song I want to highlight. It's at the top of the top end of the record it's track four all right to me like that's where they hit on all cylinders on this record there's a great pairing of the melody with the guitar and vocal during mm-hmm. the pre-chorus and then it you know goes into this uh i don't know if you call it double time with the mm-hmm. drum part in the in the chorus it's just it's super catchy it has elements of hard rock of of almost like cheap trick power pop on that record or on that that song and um that to me is like if i was gonna 
show this record to somebody, I'd probably start with that particular song just because it's so dang catchy. Was there any particular songs on the record that you thought, oh, well, this is like the standout track? Boy, a lot of them. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking of uh, Hard Drugs, which mm-hmm. is kind of a, I don't know if it's a single, but they took a song that, you know, it could have been very mailed in. And they came up with a, a chorus there that's super hooky. Um, the back on the hard drugs, back on the hard drink. Mm-hmm. And it's totally legit for them. Like when you're hearing this, I, I totally believe this band singing that lyric. You know, it it makes complete sense. That sounds like um, a, like the lost Leonard Skinner. You know, be right up there with like, give me three steps and yep. <laughs> looking uh, for the MCA. Definitely. Best of You is a track that I really uh, love every time it comes on. Um, it reminds me a lot of um, uh, Phil Lynott and Leonard Skinner. Just the, del- or, I'm sorry, the <laughs> Thin Lizzy. Uh, it's the his, way that those guitars are, and, and his vocal delivery. It's that like relax, kind of like relaxed on the backbeat, just mm-hmm. kind of cool, soulful. Uh, way delivering lyrics and melodies that and yeah and it's got enough of that guitar feel in it where you get that vibe but it's not like a not like a rip off you know they're not like aping the to the point where it's you know distracting it's just enough where you're like wow this, this sounds like a really good like lost thin lizzy tune that like they're covering or something like they're making their own mm-hmm. and that's again that's that's like track 10, you know, you're deep in yeah. the record and all of a sudden that one pops out and you're like, whoa, okay, this is a different, um, you know, a, a, another shift that I didn't see coming. Yeah. There are a lot of shifts in terms of, I was going to mention Thin Lizzy, but you got to it first. Like that's clearly a, I think an influence, especially with two guitars and, you know, sometimes they're playing similar stuff but there's a lot of times where they're playing off of each other and it's it creates a cool dynamic listening to it in headphones you can hear two different things going on that are working together and it's it's uh nice to hear when it's not just like you know just two people pounding pounding away on chords at the same time but uh doing some stuff playing off back and forth and there's a couple of tracks that um you mentioned at the top that are are slower songs I'm thinking of uh, Shivers is I, the, the ballad, I guess. 
It's actually a cover of uh, an Australian band called Boys Next Door. And then I kind of think that Think is also kind of in the ballad territory, although it kind of plays around with the tempo a little bit here and there. Um, it kind of it stays the same, but I think like the drums sort of like shift a little bit. To yeah, it kind of goes to a heavy drum and guitar riff. Yeah, bit. so I, I wouldn't quantify it as a power ballad per se, but it uh, it's almost in that territory. I thought that. Shivers worked pretty well. Think didn't work as well for me. It's a good song, but I think in terms of the bluesiness of Shivers, mm-hmm. I, I like that, especially when you tie it into some of the, the more Southern rock uh, sounding songs like Hard Drugs mentioned earlier and yep. some of the other stuff. Um, what were your thoughts on those songs? Uh, yeah, I think Shivers is is a good one. It has a little of that, like... Uh enough of a country-ish kind of twang like feel to it that works i mean it's not to the point where you're like oh it's a country song but it's just got that 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 feel um think it's more i guess power ballady in terms of you know it's got the dramatic shifts right um, i do think the chorus of that song is is strong I, so uh, it, it's a, maybe a little more generic sounding, you know. Shivers has got more character to it, but uh, again, I mean, this is this is an area where we've had, reviewed other records where they try to slow it down and, and do the do the ballad, and they can't pull it off. And I feel like these are these are competent. They're not emba- they're not embarrassing themselves by doing these songs. So this is a band that obviously scored a number of top five albums in Australia. I think they're actually. Their debut is like the highest charting debut album ever for a rock band in the in Australia or something like that. I think they have the best chart position. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I'll have to fact check that, but I think, I think that's what I read. Um, for did this not, record or the or the debut? The debut, yeah. because this is the second record. Yeah, but they, I mean, they had a string of like four records in the top twenty or something like that. So. Um, in terms of translating, though, uh, to the U.S., they did see this record get released on Atlantic, which was a major, you know, label in 1992. So you and I did not hear about this band in 1992. We were, you know, caught in the whirlwind of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and those bands and Guns N' Roses, I guess, as well. So, um, is it, uh, is it safe to say that this probably wasn't right for the time to, to come, you know, with those bands to compete with those bands? Um, that, as you mentioned, this probably was better suited for the end of the decade and maybe catching in with catching onto the, the tail end of the, uh, the decade with the hard rock and garage rock and, and Scandinavian action rock. Yeah, I mean, I for whatever reason in America at least we just I don't know if it was marketing or or what, but we just there was no chance for transitional bands or it, it was such a stark shift. I almost kind of feel like it was marketed to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that bands like this you just quickly it was like 
one side or the other. Which side are you on? You know what I mean? Are you on right. a hard rock band or are you an alternative band? Oh, you're not an alternative band? Okay, you're lame. See you in 10 years. <laughs> you know, it was for bands like this, we're like, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, we're just, it's what we do. I don't even know what, what you call it, you know? And it just didn't. Would you call it, this hard rock? I would, yeah, definitely. So. I don't think there's anything alternative about this. No, there isn't. So how does this... You, last week, you claim that Motley Crue's self-titled album is the best hard rock album <laughs> of the 1990s. Where does this place? Is this number two? I already got my balls busted for that. So yeah, good point. Uh, was it... Um, who left the comment? Was it Eric Peterson? Yeah, Eric Peterson. So yes, the late 90s saw some great uh, bands emerge. I think... Many of my favorite records by those bands tended to be more in the 99, 2000 time span. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of those bands started off a little too punk to be hard rock. Like the Helicopters. And yes, Inclusifer and Backyard Babies and ter- even Turbo Negro. Like their first records are way punkier than where they got to in the early 2000s. So some of those bands didn't jump out to me just for that reason. But I think there's definitely some really good records in there. How does this stack up against? I mean, it's different. I think um, it's not as heavy, but I, if give it a little bit more time for me to kind of listen to it and really get to know it better. I mean, it's only been uh, what a week or so that I've been listening to this record. Um, I, there's potential. I, I'm just I'm disappointed that um, this record this this record and the first record. Are, and the third record are very difficult to find. Yeah, they're not on Spotify. At least in the United States, they might be on the Australian Spotify, but we can't listen to them. They're, so. not, on, they're not on Spotify. They're not on iTunes. They're not on Amazon. No, nope. like you can only buy used copies on Amazon, and there's not very many of them. So yeah, um, you can get a hold of it on CD, but you can't get. From what I can see, there's digitally, it's very difficult to get a hold of. And yeah, I was curious in vinyl. I couldn't find any vinyl really either. That was reasonable. So I think what stinks is that I'm glowing about a record that I'm not sure how many people that listen to this are actually going to be able to uh, realistically get their hands on and listen to. But uh, yeah, that's unfortunate. And it's strange because you said it came out in Atlantic here. Yeah, in the United States. Uh, you would think somehow that the, the digital rights, the digital version would make its way, make its way out. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is, Jay, but we need to talk about what our deal is with this record. How'd you like that as a smooth transition? Were the album better EP, decent single? Jay, where you at? Album, come on. I got to say, I mean, even at 16 songs, there's, I agree that if it was at 12, I wouldn't, or 10 even, I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm missing something. <laughs> I need more material here. Right. But even at 16, I'm more having the conversation of like, how do you break this apart into two, two records and, Right. And not really throw anything away, just break it into eight and eight, maybe add one song on each from the EP. I agree. I I mean, I could do a 12 song album easily if you wanted to break them up. Mm -hmm. That's fine. Um, There's really only like maybe two songs, two or three songs that I don't love. But there's nothing that I hate. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's songs on here where I'm like, ah, it's okay. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You know, they did a good job of keeping the songs, for the most part, relatively short. Everything's between like three and four and a half minutes. There's no like 
five and a half minute long, ridiculously, you know, there's, nothing goes over goes over five minutes. Four fifty seven yep. is the longest track, so you don't have any like ridiculously long jam out, you know, six and a half seven minute long nonsense tracks. Which Some is of them nice. even are only four minutes just because they have a little intro at the beginning, like a little spoken thing or mm-hmm. some noise or. Yep. You know, a setup guitar riff or something like that. Right. All right. Well, that's two worthy albums from myself and Jay. We need to thank Gavin Reed for bringing to us another uh, gem of a requested review. Unfortunately, it's not the easiest one to find, but if you look around, you can find it on the web like we did somewhere. Want to <laughs> remind everyone that uh, you can request your reviews over at digmeoutpodcast.com for the 2016 season as well as for the 2017 season by subscribing at 250 a month for 12 months. Or if you'd just like to support the podcast, a dollar a month, we'd greatly appreciate it. And for those entered before April 30th, you get a chance to win Failures, The Heart is a Monster, double vinyl album, 180 gram. We're going to pick one winner from all of our Patreon subscribers at the end of April. And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. Jay, this was the sophomore album by this band, and next week we will be dedicate we will be uh, doing a roundtable dedicated to sophomore albums. It'll be the launch of our sophomore. I'm calling it right now, sophomore slump revisited. Where we take albums, where bands had huge debuts, didn't do so well on the second one, and we try to figure out what went wrong. Was it the music? Was it the timing? Was it the dreaded, we didn't have any time to make this record, and we put out a bunch of poop? Or uh, did the time... Drugs. Drugs. Record label said, get in there, you have three minutes to record a new album. We made $100, we spent it all on drugs. Right, there you go. So we're going to take a look at uh, an album from 1996 and discuss that sophomore record. You're going to have to tune in to find out what it is. Or you can head on over to Patreon, where we've already started discussing it. How about that? For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com when everything just runs against me